0: Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky.
1: Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salud, this is Tina from the University of Colorado.
2: And alam, greetings, this is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy Fika,
0: a
1: podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy
0: educators,
2: where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden, a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down.
1: And finding time for friends and colleagues. While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat.
2: So join us. Oh, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the FICA. It's so good to see all of you. We have a special guest with us today. Jean, or you go by Jeannie, is that right? I do. Jeannie. Jeannie. Jeannie Frenzel from North Dakota State University, which I recently saw a presentation at the AACP meeting with Jeannie there, and we were talking about ungrading. And one of our earlier topics on the FICA was talking about the detrimental impact that grades have on learning. And so we wanted to revisit this topic, how to engage in some ungrading. Jeannie, it's so great to have you on the Pharmacy Fica show. And uh, yeah, I'm excited.
3: I'm excited to be here as well. And particularly because as I logged on to your website, I saw that you have a huge picture of Metallica. And not only Metallica, but the band when they had Jason Newstead as a member, who was my personal favorite. And as a young, oh, I suppose high school, college age kiddo, I saw six Metallica concerts, one in Canada, which I'll never tell my parents about. <laughs> But I really enjoyed the band, and the fun part about that is I sometimes use it as a fun fact about me because it really doesn't fit my personality profile. It takes people a little bit by surprise.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'm actually shocked. And now your parents will know that you went to Canada.
3: (laughs) Oh, it's old history.
2: (laughs) We, of course, want to remind people that the FICA is not just about getting together and talking about some academic topic, but also to kind of reconnect with people Make new friends, share a beverage, some snacks together. And that's a, an important part of this break together. So I do want to start out by talking a little bit about what beverage and snack we've brought. And Jeannie, since you're our guest, why don't you share what you brought with us?
3: I have a mug. It says it's uh this chicken mom on it which was from (laughs) one of my residents um, most recently so we adopted six pandemic chickens as a project family project they're living their best life up in northern Minnesota on a gorgeous little farm with grandma and grandpa we try to visit them as often as we can so I've got a chicken mug full of hot cinnamon tea and I typically don't snack so I had my seven year old pick out a snack for me this morning and he chose for me a chocolate dipped granola bar. So
4: I'm looking forward to that later. A little bit risky asking him to to pick for you. (laughs) You know, could have gotten gummy worms. (laughs) He started with mini Oreos, so (laughs)
2: we did negotiate a little
4: bit. How
2: about you, Tina?
4: Um, It's only eight o'clock in the morning in Colorado, so I wasn't quite ready for a snack. And I thought... What would Jeff Kane do? He would get up delicious cold fresh Colorado water. So I'm starting with that today.
2: Yeah, and you Jeff, are you starting with water as well? Surprisingly, yes.
1: And, I, and Kristen has water too, so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
2: well, I did. I did have like two large mugs of coffee this morning, so I feel like I'm I'm reaching my caffeine limit already, so <laughs> Choosing to go with some water. Uh, Any snacks for anybody? Anybody got? Well,
1: I didn't bring a snack because it's kind of early for me too. But I did bring a little relaxation. I have my slinky with me today to just kind of settle down and enjoy
2: the moment together. That's great. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, today we wanted to talk and revisit the uh, the whole concept of grading and how to get away from grades as the primary way that we. And I hesitate to even use the word evaluate or assess students, because even that has a connotation of grading with it as well. So Jeannie has some experience doing this. I've been involved in a pass-fail course for the past few years, and I've been really thinking about how to get away from this as well. And I know each of us have thought deeply about how grades, you know, get in the way of learning a lot of the time. And so today we're just going to share some of those experiences. But I do want to start with you, Jeannie. Your presentation was fabulous at the, at the AACP meeting. I learned about the book Ungrading from you there, and I've been reading it since. And so what's your, been your experience? What's been your journey on the ungrading journey?
3: How this all started for me was a campus-wide book club. So here at North Dakota State University, our biological sciences, are really great at ungrading. They've got lots of experience that they are willing to share. So I started with the book club, Ungrading. Why Reading Students Undermines Learning and What to Do Instead. And from that stemmed at least three faculty learning communities where we just discussed ungrading and how to go about it. Um, I got lots of feedback from my colleagues, hallway conversations. What do you think about this? And so on. And I brainstormed literally for weeks. So here at North Dakota State University, I've been involved with our pharmacy practice laboratories or skills labs for the past 18 years. I focus on institutional pharmacy. My practice is on hospital pharmacy and specifically compounding sterile preparations. So we do know that ungrading helps our students kind of adopt a growth mindset, use creative thinking, really take risks, reduces stress. So when you're talking about a laboratory skill setting, that reduction in stress is a big deal no matter what I would do over the years. Whether it was increase points or decrease points, remove assignments, <laughs> it didn't matter. There's always this element of stress with the course and it was so frustrating. So that was one of my really great success stories with transitioning into this alternative grading overall was the stress in the course was really reduced and that was just excellent. I really made three large changes to the course. I had traditional assignments in my course, just like most courses do, and they would be really long study guides. Each question would be worth 0.25 points. Grading was just terrible. It generated mountains of paper that I had to return weekly. And so from those assignments, I felt like there was a small subset that really needed to be required. Perhaps they were USP 797 guidelines or calculations. They were just important to the growth of the student overall. So there are probably about five assignments. And from those, I put those into our LMS and I had the LMS auto grade for me. Everything goes in, and I gave the students multiple attempts, and they just needed to achieve a 90% or greater. So if they could do that on those required assignments, I theorized that they knew the material well enough to move forward. The second big change I made was that our students, when they were actually practicing the skill of compounding, they would work in pairs. One partner would be in the hood compounding. The other partner had a rubric developed and perfected over time, and they were supposed to be giving feedback from this rubric to the student. But I saw that that feedback was really limited. It was really impossible to know what the student understood. And then I saw those mistakes continue week after week. So one of the coolest changes I think I made is the students now work independently in their hoods. Faculty give feedback throughout the process, as we always have. But now we meet the student at our pass-through window. We've got an anti-area and a buffer area, simulated 797 compounding environment, We check their work in real time, just like we would in a hospital environment. So it's really authentic assessment, I feel. They're getting that immediate feedback. And then I put up on the wall a big chart, and I adapted the entrustable professional activities to sterile compounding. And so I've got a level of one through four. Level one, I can't demonstrate compounding. Up to a four, I can compound independently. So each week after they compounded, they put a sticky note in one of those four levels so that I could talk to them the following Monday in lecture, we could look at those results. And what I found, and I bar graphed it out, is there was a really nice trend of that confidence building and their perception of how they were compounding, moving from the left-hand side to the right-hand side. And the other thing I found, which was really surprising to me, and some of the reflective uh, learning logs that they, they prepared for me, is it was very motivating. I had no idea. They said, wow, Week after week, all I wanted to do was move that from the left-hand side of the chart to the right, and this really helped me accomplish it, and I feel a lot better. Or I knew to go back and review my materials, so really eye-opening how something so simple could be so effective. And the last large change that I made was I created a portfolio project, which allowed the students to really customize their learning. It was self-paced. We incorporated peer review and faculty review and very intentional Peer reviews, and they could choose from six predefined projects. And of those projects, they chose four. Halfway through, after they had two projects done, they exchanged those projects with a peer, got some feedback, and then they could use that feedback to revise. So, revise and resubmit, allowing them to really synthesize and think about what they were doing, and then submit their final four projects to me, who gave that final feedback. Interestingly, the peer feedback was very serious. And the students, I asked them, you know, now that you've looked at someone else's work, what are you going to do with your own work? And they said, I'm going back. Mine doesn't look as professional as it needs to. They were really conscientious of how the work was presented. And they said, I'm going back and making some changes. The last thing I'll say is I incorporated reflection into all of this. So before I would give all these assignments out, but I never really knew what they took away from it, other than maybe on a summative exam at the end of the semester. And without those reflective comments, very simple, very brief, I knew exactly what they were learning. So students would say, "I chose to read this book and all these chapters on institutional hospital pharmacy. Not only did it help me reinforce what I was learning in lecture, but I hear pharmacists talking in my workplace, and I'm unfamiliar with the terms, and now I." Know know the context of it
2: because I read this book. So that was cool too. (laughs) One of the things that I really liked about the things that you're doing in your lab was this idea that students judge where their performance is. You don't. They're the ones who decide where to put their sticky notes and where it is on that continuum. And then you get a visual about, you know, kind of where your students feel they are at. You're not judging them. Of course, they've gotten feedback during the lab. So tell me how that works a little bit more and whether you think that's been a successful strategy, what What are the benefits to you and what do you think the benefits to the students have been?
3: Absolutely. In fact, I just wrote myself a sticky note yesterday that said, make your big wall sticky for class. That's how successful it was. I want to continue on with it. I think... Them being able to visualize how they're doing and even how their peers are doing was really helpful in that they could see their improvement. So that was very motivating. They got excited about that. They're like, well, I'm headed in the right direction. But in addition to that, all of that feedback that we were giving them throughout the entire process and the removal of that 10 points, the questions skyrocketed. You knew they had the questions all along, they just were too afraid to ask them. And the stress, it was absolutely palpable, came right down. They were so much more comfortable. And in that learning environment, it was a much safer environment. Um, and they felt, I felt like their skill development just really improved in a lot quicker fashion. So something as simple as sticky notes can be very effective.
4: Jeannie, one thing I heard you say is the magic word for me is always that M word, motivation. I've had some success, but only when I teach them how to, you know, invest in some skill building for them in assessing their own competency and assessing competency for others. And that was one question I had for you, because it just sounds like you've made a world of change within your course. And I wondered how that related to what's going on in other aspects of the curriculum, either, you know, reinforcing what you're teaching them and they're able to apply that in other classes, even if they're not ungrading, or, it's it's a struggle now because you've tapped into something that is really motivating them and that now they're looking at other courses going, but I'm not getting a chance to self-rate myself and to set my goals for improvement. Why am I not? Any comment on that? Well,
3: I agree with you. I think that's really interesting. And, and as I had mentioned, it was really difficult to modify or create an alternative grading structure for the skills laboratory just because it didn't have that didactic structure to it. So maybe that's one of the reasons. It's just a completely different type of course. And the way I've been able to modify it just makes sense to the students. Like, I know that this is a safe learning space. I should be able to make mistakes. That's a big comment that resonated throughout all of the reflections. Like, wow, I really felt like it was okay to make mistakes and I wasn't penalized for it boy, that's a major goal that I've always had. You shouldn't feel penalized. This is where you need to practice that. And I do have some other faculty. We've got two courses in particular, a capstone course and a practice management improvement course that are also dabbling in ungrading. But I will say, side comment, that one of the things we found is we all went to this heavy reflection and all of a sudden the students were writing 23 reflections, 36 reflections. So just right now that we're all kind of experimenting a little bit and getting on the same pages would be very important just to make sure that we're not overburdening them
4: the opposite way. Yeah, in my Monash program, by teaching them a consistent reflection framework, and we used a consistent feedback framework, the first people out of the gate, first courses out of the gate, it was hard. (laughs) And then after that, you really saw them Gets better and better at better at self-assessing themselves, reflecting on their knowledge gaps, and setting a plan for improvement.
2: Oh. Have, have any of you kind of experimented with this, where students are really rating their own performance? I think one of the worries that a lot of faculty have is that students are going to overrate their performance. You know the Dunning Kruger effect. We think we know it already, already, right? And when in fact we still have a lot to learn. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Is to have this confidence early on. One of the things in the book in, on grading, she talks about in the foreword of the book about they moved away from using letter grades and numerical ratings in their rubrics because it connotes this judgment and levels. And then they started using words to describe it. For each of those levels, which I, I assume that you, that's exactly what you've done with your poster board and the post it notes. It's words to describe different levels. But then she goes on to say, but even that is a form of judgment. You are still labeling levels of performance. I went to this like, all the right stuff is my top level, getting the job done is the second level, not yet is my third level, and not done, meaning literally. You didn't do anything in this area as my four levels, but it's still levels, right? We, we don't call it A, B, C, or D. And maybe that helps. Maybe that helps move the students past the whole grading idea. But how do we get to a point where literally we don't even do that? Is that possible or even desirable? Well, I, I don't, you know, I was
4: thinking about this compounding example and sort of analysis of product after. Let's say you you make something and it's supposed to have 200 milligrams of progesterone. I'm making that up. And, you know, if you're doing quality improvement and analysis of that product, you're going to know whether it's got 210 milligrams, 190 milligrams, or 300 milligrams. Or as when I used to teach compounding, sometimes there would be zero milligrams. And so I wonder if we have some of our product and quality goals competing a bit with, because you wouldn't want the student to say, I'm happy there was zero <laughs> milligrams of, of drug in my product. So I, I don't, I'm, I'm curious of, you know, th- the idea of leveling it all versus understanding where you are on the journey. Like to me, understanding where I'm on the journey, even if I know I'm slightly behind my cohort or haven't hit the quality standard, is the win, not having no leveling around that. But but I also, and I maybe pitch this over to Kristen, I mean, I'm really paying more attention about equity And I noticed that with ungrading, you you know, you have some people that say this is the universal equalizer and you have other people that says this actually feeds inequity. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to have to sort this out and really deep dive into what makes it equalizing and what makes it unequalizing.
1: Yeah, there was a an, an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education that talks about the unintended consequences of ungrading and just raises the question as to whether removing some of what they refer to as signposts, grading can, can give people clues as to where they stand. But by removing that, do you, you leave some students more than others floundering a bit? And kind of wondering and and if left to their own devices trying to trying to guess, and maybe they don't guess so well and and it it could disadvantage some students. So it's just an interesting kind of counterpoint to the whole conversation. I mean, obviously the devil's in the details and all of these changes that we make are within a context. You know, Jeannie's talked about how lab might be a special environment if we move this into another course or another institution even, there's all these contextual variables that may alter how we go about doing this work. And and in some pieces, we may need to be more attentive to the equity that is or isn't present in, in the system.
0: And that was a, a really interesting article. Thanks for sharing that, Kristen. One of the things I noticed in that is, and I forget who it was, that was countering that part about the signpost being removed and that, Disadvantaging some students. Okay, so what is it the students are using that signpost for? It doesn't have necessarily have to be a grade, but you need to provide that sign. Maybe you can do that in another way. So maybe that's how you provide the feedback. I'm sure you're going to link that in the show notes, Stuart. That's a, it's a good little short read for everyone. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I, one of the things that I like about the ungrading philosophy is is less about comparing students to each other and more about focusing on student learning and their progress over time. Now, how do you know that students are learning? (laughs) You know, I mean, the attempt is to have it be less focused on some judgments and more focused on the student's sense of their learning and their motivation to learn. But I think you're right. I think students want to know, well, how am I doing? In in your opinion, you're the teacher, you're the expert. How am I doing relative to some standard that you may have only in your head or you've written down? But I like to know that I'm making progress. And I think that's important. I think we all like to have feedback. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I struggle with.
0: Yeah, we all sort of, and I read this somewhere a long, long time ago, is that we all try to put ourselves in line in everything of, of life, of whether how smart someone is, how athletic someone is, how well-spoken, how pretty, how whatever. We all try to form our lines and get in lines. It's just an innate kind of feel
2: that's that social comparison that's so innate to all of us we're trying to compare ourselves to the other people that are around us and the detrimental effects of that we all know which is we tend to compare ourselves to the people that are closest to us so if i'm around a lot of other people who i perceive to be a lot brighter i might be an intelligent genius but if i think those other people are more genius than me i feel small (laughs) even though in the large world of geniuses, I'm way up there. (laughs) The same thing with beauty, with your finances, right? You know, you think you're poor compared to your neighbors. And therefore, even though you're one of the wealthiest people in the world, it's all about comparing yourself to those people that are close to you. But how do we get students and even ourselves away from that kind of social comparison so that they're comparing themselves to themselves?
4: I, I think some of that, though, as Stuart's saying, he used a positive example. You could be really, you could be number 50, but 50 among geniuses is still pretty great. And number one among people who can't do the task is still not that great. But we have to teach them those skills and they're coming to us. Some of them may be coming from very you know, privileged backgrounds, great high schools that have put the time into this and perhaps Smaller college classes that really invested in them and other people may be coming not with that background and only coming with that traditional, I have no idea how to evaluate myself. I'm used to the system telling me where I am in this group. So I love, the, the, I love everything about ungrading as long as pharmacy is willing to invest the time in teaching them how to do that. Teaching you to self-evaluate yourself and develop an action plan towards getting where you want to be is probably second to learning to use an Excel spreadsheet, the most transferable skill you will ever learn in life, right? No matter what you do in your career, it's just, it's going to
2: take some time and a lot of feedback to teach that. Mm -hmm. And so part of that is, I think, also the skill, not only evaluating yourself, But. but peer evaluation. Because I think we all need affirmation because we're maybe trying to judge ourselves, but we're not sure. And so we seek some peer evaluation to affirm and to hear about ways that we could be better or things that other people are seeing. And I know, Gene, you've experimented or you're using peer evaluation as part of your process to build those skills. And I'm curious how it's worked Because I find students loathe to give each other feedback, or if they do, it's all positive. They, They have a hard time being constructive with each other, but maybe your experience is different because it's a safer learning environment.
3: I think we had a good experience. This was all new to the course, and so first attempt, I think it looked pretty good. And I gave them a rubric, so they had just two questions. Are the, the elements present that need to be there? Does it look okay? But then I had four really structured pointed questions where I asked them overall, what do you think they did well and maybe need some improvement? What are you going to go back to do in your own work? I really felt like they did take it seriously. I thought the comments were excellent and thoughtful. I don't know if it's because it was a very directed type of feedback or or if they were hoping to get the same type of feedback from their peers, I feel like I got some comments like, I don't know if that was enough just to get some student feedback. I probably would have preferred to have some faculty feedback as well. So that's one area I'm thinking about maybe changing a little bit. Kind of going back to that equity conversation, one thing I found is that I did have to retain our performance-based assessment or skill rubric. You do need to know how to compound safely and aseptically. Before leaving the course, that's non-negotiable. And so that has points associated with this 30-point rubric. So I just looked at my traditionally graded course and my alternatively graded course, and I found that their skill assessments were very comparable. The mean, mean scores were very similar. But what I did see is that my lowest performers, that range went Way up. So I do feel strongly that I was reaching my lower performers and they weren't getting lost in the mix. They were getting all of that really good feedback at the pass through window. They knew exactly what was happening. They weren't missing out on the feedback in the previous iteration of the course where maybe their partner was supposed to give them some, but maybe they hadn't been partners before and they didn't feel comfortable with each other, so they really didn't talk to each other the entire time. It was just so much better to have all of that feedback and that sticky note feedback. They probably were asking more questions, and so performance went up. So that's just a really small kind of piece of evidence for me. I think it is working to a degree. The other thing I think I want to think about changing in the future is with that skill-based exam. This year, I'd really like to film them, have them film themselves and self-assess. So that's where I'm headed with that. I'm really excited. Have them self-assess. I will assess them. And so it'll be interesting to see the feedback they give themselves, compare it to mine. And then I haven't decided yet how I will reconcile the two to give them a final score. But something that I'm I'm thinking about doing.
0: So Jeannie, I have another question for you. So when we talk about alternative grading and just changing the way we do things, one of the barriers is time. So I don't have time to do this or this is going to take longer, particularly when things like active learning and feedback is concerned. So did you find more or less time or just different uses of your time with this? That's a
3: really good question. I found that I had way more time. Auto grading in the LMS changed everything and they were getting feedback through that. They could reach that 90%, keep going if they chose to. I gave them everything first day of the semester. They had the whole semester to complete all of the different projects and assignments. So whatever fit best in their schedule worked worked for them. And so I liked that they could customize their learning experience. So automating, And the LMS definitely gave me a lot of time back. Doing that real-time feedback after they had just compounded their product gave me a lot of time back because I wasn't grading products after class, recording the rubrics and returning those rubrics. But then that being said, giving them really intentional feedback on their portfolios does take time. Absolutely. Giving good quality feedback takes time. And so you do have to budget for that. But I do think it was a trade-off and I think I had more time back and I could focus on other things other than grading those little quarter-point assignments that traditionally had just filled up all
2: of my time. One of the things, if you're training health professionals or other disciplines where people are going to go out and do work in the world that others are going to depend on, there needs to be some level of accountability that your knowledge and skill is sufficient enough for you to go out in the world and do it. And one of the reasons why we have licensing examinations is, is to have some level of accountability. Of course, that's done by a third party. I do not construct that test, but I'm on your side to help you pass that. So in Jeannie's example, her course, you have to do an aseptic compounding at the end of this. I don't administer that. I know what the rubric is. I've seen it. We've all seen it. And my job is to get you prepared for that. But in the end, someone else is going to be judging your performance, not me. And we do this in in our seminar course. I have each student assigned a coach and it's a faculty member, but their actual presentation is scored by somebody else. It's not scored by their coach. And so the final product is, quote, objectively, someone who's never seen you perform before. And I don't know if that helps to ungrade this a bit. In other words, at least in the teaching part of it, my role is to help prepare you. It's not to judge you. And I don't know if that helps.
1: I think it does in that it is hard for students to understand what hat we're wearing when. And am, am I being a coach right now? is this being formative or am I just filing things away in my brain that later I'm going to catch you on, you know, when I, when it comes to the time for me to really be a judge. So I, I think it does help separate those hats that, that people are wearing and maybe does help students with stress and and help them to focus on the task to say, okay, this is my coach right now. And, and later, you know, later I'll worry after I've practiced this and done this, then I'll worry about uh, standing up in front of a judge.
0: I mean, I think that's the way the way I looked at my PhD work, my graduate work. It was my dissertation chair was my coach. He wasn't ultimately my judge because I had to defend that dissertation among a bunch of other people. So that has a lot of appeal to me.
2: Yeah, and I'm wondering if we did more of our curriculum that way. In other words, I don't administer the tests. I don't create the tests. I'm teaching you the material to help prepare you for it. And I have a sense of what's on it because they've given me a list of what could be tested, just like you, but I'm not privy to the actual questions. So my job is to prepare you for that. And I'm on your side, like, you know, your success is important to me because that's what I'm preparing you for. I don't know if that changes students' mindset to the educational process.
0: I was an an accounting major at one point and the accounting exams were done that way. So the professor didn't create, there was a department college level accounting exam. And so I think I I loved my accounting professors. Now, if I'm thinking back, is it because I viewed them solely as my coach or was there other aspects of that? I'm not sure that's been a long time.
1: Obviously, anything that we change in a grading system. We change one variable, we change five variables. Anything we change is going to have an effect and it's, and it's going to have a, an effect based on the context where it's, where it's happening. Now I, I'm just trying to kind of play this out in my mind. If, if we had coach and judge separate, that does open the potential for students to just say, well, you didn't prepare me well. And so you have to think about the whole system Right, it's it's not just changing that variable, but how is it that I also help students to accept more responsibility? In my mind, having to think at the systems level, we we like to make changes, but changing one thing may not necessarily s- just be that miracle answer that's going to get us to the right the right place.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I had a few other things on my list here, pass-fail courses. So one of the reasons that we've talked about pass-fail courses is that it, it tries to do some of this ungrading, right? Not, not have it be so focused on what level of performance that you're achieving, that there is a level of performance that's sufficient, they're trying to get away from this comparison and the leveling, and and there is some anecdotal evidence to suggest student stress levels are somewhat less when they're in a pass-fail curriculum. I think it's an interesting idea that many programs have gone to this pass-fail with the hopes of reducing student stress and focusing more on the learning and stop being so competitive with each other and being so judgy about whether your level of performance is really good Or not? Is it equalizing, particularly for disadvantaged students who come from backgrounds where they may not be as well prepared? Some students come in and they put very little effort in; they get A's, and other students are putting a tremendous amount of effort, and they're they're getting a C. But man, they've learned a lot, and yet they both passed, right? So yeah, thoughts about pass fail, and does that really achieve some of the ungrading principles?
1: I'm reflecting back on what we said earlier about being human. And wanting to line up. And I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, this is what we give students. Whether we give them a pass or fail or GPA or letter grade or points or whatever, this is the system that we've created. And so it's the thing that they pride themselves on. And and it's happened through K-12, you know, in many, I think that's changing now, but like they've grown up in a system where I rate myself relative to others based on this kind of performance. So how do we give them other things? You know, what are the other other ways that they could feel like they have distinguished themselves and that they are standing out? How do we help them find other measures of success besides grades?
4: I've talked to people, for example, who took
1: up running
4: maybe late in life. And they said, you know, what I love about that is I'm just trying to get my time better. I'm not actually worried about, I'm probably not going to be in the Olympics or win the New York marathon, but I see myself getting stronger and better. But you really hear that internal motivation to be the best you can be. And I wonder if there's something we can learn from, from sport. I wonder if there's something in studying athletics that could help us. I don't
0: know what you think, Jeff. Jeff, It does sound reasonable because many sports, it's not so much if you've won or lost or what place, but is it your own relative performance? Do you get a PR, personal record, or a PB, personal best, especially track and field? It's you're trying to get better all the time. And you may go into an event and get fifth place, but that be better than a first place Because you performed better, maybe not so much against everybody else, they maybe performed their best too, but you did your best versus getting first place and not doing your best and because no one else did their best either. So it it makes good sense. Now, how do you get that mindset across? That's a
2: good question. I think it does go back to Kristen's earlier statement is like, you've got to acculturate it from a very early age that your personal best is what you're striving for in We've got to have some signposting for it because athletes have signposts, right? They have a time. So how do we have a signpost that a student can look to and feel like my performance is getting better? I can at least as objectively as I can evaluate myself against some standards so that I know that I'm getting better. And I think that's one of the difficulties is that we don't have good signposts, I guess, in terms of measurement. So... Well, I wanted to end by giving Jeannie one final opportunity to kind of summarize what your ungrading journey has meant for you.
3: Well, I think it's more important to talk about what it's meant for the students, actually, because I feel like... The skill development has just greatly improved their confidence. I do have evidence, right? I've got statistically significant gains in knowledge and confidence. Just really, I'm, I'm passionate about this. I'm excited that I tried it. I'm looking forward to trying more of it. I think the students just benefit so greatly from it to have that safe environment, to feel comfortable asking questions. And it's fun for me. It's fun, fun to see them want to learn and grow and read all those reflective comments. I should say one of one of my most favorite portfolio projects is the students had a chance to be creative. And so they could design a facility show me that they knew what a compounding suite should look like. Most of them would find an iPad and narrate, and it had a great little visual as they were writing on that. And they could show me how to progress from the anti-room to the room. But a part of that also was to create two tutorials of sterile compounding with common household products. And I saw the coolest videos. It would have grocery bags on their heads and winter coats and gloves to simulate garb. They were using baggies of water and their kitchen hood as their actual hood. And just through that narration, I knew immediately that they knew what they were talking about and how to perform this skill versus when I was observing them with a rubric, I really had, they were going through step-by-step step and meeting my criteria, but I didn't know that they had a deeper understanding of the learning material. So, just extremely excited about the possibilities with alternative grading and how
2: we can engage our students
3: in a deeper form of learning.
2: So, it's great to see you all. Goodbye, everyone, and I hope to see you in a month on the FECA.
1: Absolutely. Bye, guys. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye, guys.
2: Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked
4: this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us.
2: You
0: can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fica, but please be kind. This is a safe space.
1: Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash Bye for now. Namaste. vidanya. Au revoir